you for listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit sozospokane.com. Sozo Church. Amen. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? Good to see you all here, Sozo. It's good to be in the house and to have you all uh, online. <laughs> Sorry. This is like the, the time of year, the time of years where you're just never allowed to cough. Anybody else notice that? <laughs> unless, unless, I'm not, this is, this, I'm not telling you to do this. I'm just letting you know it works. If you're in line at the grocery store and it's long, just start coughing. Everyone gets out of the way and you can just check your groceries out. It works fairly well. I didn't know what was going on until after it had happened, but, you know, just throwing it out there. Um, it's good to be together this morning. Good to be, uh, good to be able to gather however we're able to gather, whether it's in person or online. We appreciate you guys being with us this morning. Uh, excited for next week. It's going to be a good, it's going to be a good time. Um, I've got a lot to cover. We're, we're trying to wrap up this morning. Uh, the 13th chapter of John, because we want to jump into chapter 14 uh, next week. I think that's a good idea. There's some wisdom in that, so we're going to go ahead and try that. So i uh, got a lot to cover this morning. Um, so let's go ahead and go right to the Word. We're going to go to the first verse, but then we're going to jump down to the 12th verse. Let's grab our Bibles. Let's get them open on our phones, on our tablets, whatever you got, and let's stand to our feet for the reading of God's Word. That includes everybody at home. You have to stand to your feet, too, um, just because, just because. Uh, let's, let's read this together this morning, uh, reading out of the ESV, starting in verse 1, it says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now let's jump up to verse 12. And we're going to read some Bible this morning. Who's excited for some Bible reading? Good, I came to the right place. When he, that is Jesus, when he had washed the feet, their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. That's going to be important to our discussion later. Verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom he loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is, the, it, is, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bags, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Let's pray together this morning, church. Holy Spirit, we thank you. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is living and it is active. God, we thank you that we do not have to, to, to question or to, to doubt or to be discouraged as to whether or not you desire and will speak to us because we know that you have promised to speak to us and that you have given us your word through which you speak. And so we come now humbly and hungry to hear your word. Lord, you say that you set a, a table, literally the, the, the word there is you set a feast before us even in the presence of our enemies. So regardless of the situations and the circumstances under which we find ourselves at this moment, we know that you are prepared, preparing and have prepared to speak to us. You have a, a specific word for us as your specific people for this specific time. And so we come, God, hungry to hear what it is you would say to us, to eat richly of your word today. So we ask that you would speak, that we would receive that we would be transformed and we would respond in obedience to what it is that you say, believing you above and beyond anything else in our lives, that you might receive glory and the world might see the good that comes from following you. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Come on, everybody said? Amen. Greet somebody around you real fast and grab a seat. Amen, amen. Um, you know, I, I've discovered uh, a few truths as I've gotten older. Um, one of those truths, tell me if, if you're old enough to know this, Let's see if this resonates. The older I get, the better I was. Like when I think back to my younger self, I had my stuff a whole lot more. I was way better at things than I really was. Come on, somebody. The, the, the farther, the more distance I get from, from myself now and where I used to be, the cloudier my failures and fallings become. And what's odd about this, as I was thinking about this, as I was meditating on this this week, is that the older I get, the more I discover things I'm not good at. I'm, I'm bad at things that should come naturally to me. 
I'm horrible at things that, that you, you see, you see somebody do it, you, you think about it, you think you've been able to do it your whole life, then you try to do it and you realize that you're miserable at it. I'll, I'll just, this is just confession time for me. Thanks for, for being here. Um, my name's Mark, and I stink at vacationing. I stink, at, I stink at planning them, I stink at going on them, but even once I'm on them, I'm horrible at vacationing. Uh, I'll throw my wife under the bus with me on this one. We're both horrible at it, which does not help at all. Uh, we, go, we go on vacation and realize four, five, six, seven days into vacation that we haven't stopped going the entire time because there's something in us that just says we have to do all of the things all of the time, constantly go. We're just going type people. And so does anybody, anybody know this, this horrible cliche statement and anybody else can identify with this, that by the time you get back from your vacation, you need another vacation? Like you need a break from being on vacation somehow. I'm just horrible at it. I don't, I don't rest well. I don't like to stop. I, I think there's, there's limited time and we need to be doing things all of the time. I, don't, I, don't, I just don't like resting. And this is important for us this morning because as we've been kind of walking through this text, we, we've been looking at the, the three specific people that Jesus has uh, one-on-one sort of encounters with in this, this group setting. We've, we've seen Judas. We've seen uh, Peter, and this morning we're going to be looking at John. And so, if you're taking notes and you want a title for this morning, I'll give you options. I got two of them for you. It's receiving rest or the art of reclining. Um, I, I'm bad at both of these things. I, I'm just bad at stopping. Uh, my, my my wife and I uh, were were with our, our whole family. Actually, we were in uh, Hawaii a while back. My wife, her family comes from Hawaii, uh, so be jealous. And um, and it's interesting, we, we, we met family, we met some of our extended family while we were there. We, we were hanging out with, with one of our aunties, and we were talking story, and, and, and they began to tell stories about her family. And, I, and if any married people, you might, you might kind of connect with this, you start learning things, things that confused you about your spouse when you meet their family, you're like, oh, I get it now. Like, I remember when she first met my extended family. Um, this will tell you how much I love my extended family. Uh, it was 12 years into our marriage before she met my extended family. Uh, we went to a McNamee family reunion. I love you all, you McNamees, if you're watching. Uh, you're not. You're all in bed still. Um, and, uh, and, and she met, and, and, and I told stories about these crazy uh, you know, family reunions and explained to her why we weren't going to them. And, uh, and after we left the first time that she went, some of you have heard this story before, uh, the first time we left uh, after going and we're driving away and the car is very silent, mostly out of shock and fear. And uh, I said, you know, what do you think, babe? She goes, all these years, these 12 years, you've been telling stories about your family reunion. And uh, I used to think you were being funny. I said, what do you think now? And she said, I think you were being kind. Um... <laughs> <laughs> like, like it, it was, it's, it's just crazy. But, but we're, we're hanging out with, with one of our aunties, and, and she says, yeah, in, in, the, in, the, in the Freitas family, we have a saying. The saying is this, can you do this while you're resting? <laughs> while you're taking a break, do you mind folding laundry? While you're resting, do you mind mowing the lawn? <laughs> While you're resting, do you mind fixing the car? It's this, this idea that I realize that it's, it's sort of ingrained in some of us that just stopping and resting is so hard when we think there's so much to do. And yet in John, we see this amazing picture. So, so let's go ahead and jump into our text this morning and look at some things. Let's, let's, I'm going to review as fast as I can just to make sure we're all on the same page. We've been looking at primarily, first we want to look at Jesus, Amen. 
I'm going to teach you how to read the Bible. I'm going to teach you how to study the Bible. First thing you need to do is find. Find who? Okay, I just want to make sure you all knew what you are saying. So we're, we're, we're trying to find Jesus. So as we've looked at, at Jesus through this story, we've seen Jesus as the inviting, redeeming one. Amen? We've seen Jesus as the, the intervening, rescuing one. We saw him, him first in, in his relationship with Judas, next in his relationship with, with Peter. What we've seen through this is that Jesus is boringly, come on, consistent in everything that he does. In what he says and what he does, he's boringly consistent. Why? Because he is about his father's business. That's what Jesus is doing. He has a mission. We see this in this text where it says, look, he knew his time on earth was done, and he was going back to the father. Everything in Jesus' life is about the Father. He's trying to show us the Father. He's trying to, 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 to speak for the Father. Everything, he says everything he does, he only does because he first sees the Father doing it. Jesus' life was centered around this mission that he was on. What was his mission? Jesus is, in relentless, is, is relentlessly pursuing the redemption, reconciliation, and reclamation of his people. Amen? Redemption, he's trying to get us out of the sin and shame that we're in. Reconciliation, he's trying to get us back into right standing in relationship with his Father. And reclamation is him trying to restore back to us the initial divine purpose and plan that he had for us. That is being image bearers of God, filling the earth with his image. That's what Jesus is about. And what we've seen as we've looked at these different players in these accounts is that when we misunderstand that that is Jesus' mission, things start to go awry. Things start to, to get skewed. We, we, we misinterpret either, either by failing to understand or by, or by understanding partially but not having a full enough picture and therefore we get off. And we saw this with Judas Iscariot. We called him the intriguing, rebellious one. Judas seems only able to, to perceive what's going on from what I want to call a terrestrial and temporal perspective. He only can see kind of what's happening right here and right now. We, we, we talked about a lot of conjecture about, about Judas. We, we don't know a ton about him, but we saw enough from inference and from uh, details about who he was to see that he was really all about the pragmatic, practical fixing of what's going on. And, and from that, he tries to force Jesus to make his mission about fixing the political problems or the social injustices of his day. Jesus, you need to fix this, and he tries, he attempts to strong arm and to force Jesus into those specific, that specific channel. And he utterly, completely, either, either he is ignorant to or he is ignoring the supernatural, unseen perspective of what's going on in Jesus' ministry. He seems to be just focused on practical stuff, just focused on the here and the now. I think it's fair to say, again, this is, this is slight conjecture, but I think it's fair to say that Judas would have identified first as a Jew. His identity was found in his, his, his allegiance to his country, to his people, to his culture. Maybe next we saw that Iscariot was a, was a group of, of hyperzealot people. So then maybe, again, we don't know, right? Like there's a chance that either, either he was a, a, a hyperzealot or maybe like some of you, you've, you were raised in sort of a hyper uh, perspective and then you swung real hard the other way. 
But then, so maybe we could say first he was a Jew, next he, he probably was a, a, a aligned with his, his political or social kind of constructs, be that either, either a, a conservative or a progressive. And then maybe, maybe third, maybe a distant third, he was a follower of Jesus. We see no profession of lordship from Judas in his relationship with Jesus. What I want us to understand is that Judas's lack of understanding, his limited view of reality, his blindness to the supernatural, and his denial of the unseen realm made him extremely susceptible to the evil in those places. We see point blank in the text, it says that, uh, that Satan himself came and dwelled within Judas. Isn't it interesting that a guy who ignores all of that becomes susceptible to it? Turns a blind eye to it, pretends like it's not there, doesn't want anything to do with it, and yet finds himself as the very instrument of that thing. Now, this is really easy to sort of talk about Judas, because ultimately, right, like Judas is the bad guy. He wears the black hat in the, in the Western, you know, movie. He's the easy-to-spot bad guy. But the reality is this. We need to land this in our own backyards and realize that when we try to align ourselves, two warnings I want to give you. When we try to, to, to make our first allegiance to just pragmatic, practical, terrestrial things and we ignore the supernatural, we are actually more at risk in that moment of being open to its influence than ever before. And in case the inference wasn't clear enough, not in a good way. Second thing I need us to understand is this, and I, I need you to know that I love you. But when we try to have first allegiance to our, our, our conservatism or our progressivism, I don't care what title you want to give those things, and then you try to marry Jesus to that, you are betraying Jesus. Period. Full stop, no exceptions. You know, no, but, no, but, 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 but the Bible says that we should love justice, so if we make Jesus all about justice, that's a good thing. No, no, no. What is Jesus obsessed with? What is Jesus trying to accomplish? The redemption, the reconciliation, and the reclamation of his people. Does God love justice? Amen. But if that was Jesus' primary mission in his initial coming, I love you, he failed. Because when he left, Israel was still under the boot of Rome. So he failed. But if you back the camera up, come on, if you, if, you, if you continue in the story, you see that the radical message of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, the gospel message is ultimately what topples Rome. So does he care about justice? Yes, but he knows how to get true, come on, biblical, supernatural justice that we fail at every single time. Now you go, well, no, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to you know, protect the sanctity of marriage and the holiness of God, the holiness of the family. Yes, but if that's your primary goal, come on, somebody, not Jesus, you've betrayed him. You've sold him out for something else, period, 100% of the time, all of the time. So Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. doesn't matter who you voted for, what color tie you like your president to wear, To this, we then see Peter. And Peter is kind of like a lot of Christians' knee-jerk reaction to, uh, to, the, to, to a Judas. 
in Peter, in Simon Peter, we see the insecure religious one. Whereas Judas sort of went all external, Peter goes super internal. Peter's whole relationship, every interaction with Jesus is marked by a crippling insecurity. Peter has no stability when it comes to interacting with Jesus. It's, it's remarkable, actually, just how, how bad he is. I can identify with Peter. Peter seems to, to see every interaction with Jesus through this lens of being tested, maybe, or, or more truthfully, being tricked or being trapped by Jesus. He thinks he has to earn or merit his place with Jesus. He's unable to receive anything from Jesus because Peter is under the lie, like many of us are, that we are responsible for fixing our own problems. Because see, here's, here's, the, here's where I think, I think a lot of us get off a uh, track in this. It is absolutely fundamentally necessary, according to this, for us to understand as we approach God initially, catch, with the, catch me with this please, as we approach God initially, as we, as we seek to respond to the gospel, it is fundamentally necessary for us to realize our need for Jesus. Are you tracking with me? Let me put it, let me put it old school. You have to realize your sinfulness before you can see rightly his saviorness. Savoriness? Sa saviorness. We'll go savoriness. You, you have to know, right? You have to know you need a savior before you can see him as your savior. Are you tracking with me? But this is, this is why it's so important to me to for us to understand this. That, that yes, you are an enemy of God outside of Christ. No exceptions, no, doesn't matter whether you want to be, whether you thought you were, whether you, whether you consciously did it or unconsciously did it, you are. That's what the Bible says. But here's what it also says, that when you are in Christ, you are family. Let me say it to you this way. Just as lost as you were outside of Jesus is as found as you are in him. You are not what you used to be. But see, when we, when, we, when, we, when we started here, we sometimes get stuck here. And here's what I need you to understand. If you think it is your job to fix your spiritual supernatural problems, you are just as lost as, as Judas. Religion will send you to hell just as fast as rebellion. Paul actually warns the Colossians about or the Galatians about this. He's like you can't go back to your old ways. And he's not talking look he's talking to a bunch of, of people who were religious people who were who were morally superior to everyone in this room. They did better than all of us and and Paul warns them and what he warns them is this if you go back there Jesus is of no use to you. Peter was trying to earn or maybe merit his standing with God and, and he is just, come on, as lost as Judas. Too many Christians fall into the dangerous trap of abandoning grace, of nullifying grace to return to their works. The good news is 
Jesus is better at pursuing you than you are at running away from him. I'm going to say that again because somebody needs to hear that. I'll just, I'm going to make it simpler. Jesus is faster than you. So you can run and you can hide. But Jesus is faster than you and Jesus is a better seeker. Come on, somebody. Then you are a hider. And we saw that even by the time Peter gets to the end of his life, he's recognized that everything that he needs, come on, comes to him from God. Now let's see John. John the Beloved. John the Beloved is the intimate resting one. We contrast these two with John. I love this about John. You say, well, how do you know it's John? That's the funny thing. In the story, he has no name. In the story, he, he, he puts no spotlight upon himself. He makes himself the exact opposite of what many of us would do. He, he writes the story, and yet he, he seems to almost, if, if, if you read through, I'd encourage you to do this, if you have the time, to, to just sit down and read through the Gospel of John in one sitting. And it's almost like John is trying to hide himself in the story. He doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't want to be noticed. He doesn't want to be the one that's there. And so, so when he kind of has to narratively kind of, well, I, I need to share this, that Jesus pointed out who Jesus was. Uh, he doesn't put his name. He just says the one whom Jesus loved. Some translations say the beloved disciple. I, I like that, so I use that. He hides himself in the story because he wants you. Listen, his whole goal, he tells us this in his in his gospel, he tells us this in his account. His whole goal in writing this was to get you to embrace and entrust Jesus with everything in your life. So why would he make it about himself? It's all about It's all about Jesus. Two and oh, guys. It's all about Jesus. He's trying to get us to see Jesus. John is known, I love this, man. John is known exclusively in his gospel by his proximity to Jesus. We only know John as it relates to him relating to Jesus. It's amazing. And Jesus, really, I mean, you think about, can, can, we, can we just stop for a second and, 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 and take, take, take this story out, out, off of, the, off of the, the flannel graph, off of the religious sort of tapestry that we like to put it in, off of the stained glass, and just try to insert ourselves here. Recognize that Jesus has, has, <laughs> has just been on a consistent winning streak over the last several months. As we read through the Gospels, right, his, his popularity, his influence seems to be growing. He's raised Lazarus, come on somebody, from the dead, and everyone's talking about it. He's, he, has, he has come to a place where he has utterly silenced the religious leaders of his day by his presentation of the truth. They're kind of done. They, they seem to be running away from him to the point where even the disciples know that, that the leaders are trying to find a way to just kill Jesus at this point. They're like, we can't beat him. We, we won't join him. So let's just try to find a way to kill him. He then comes into Jerusalem and gets literally a king's welcome. Imagine the atmosphere in this room that Jesus and his 12 disciples are in. Imagine the excitement and the anticipation and the hope and the electricity that must have been in that room. This was, this was, this was not, come on, 
You, you, we, we fail. So we make religious things somber. That's sort of like the default American position, right? Like if it's religious, it needs to be miserable. Right? Like if it's spiritual, it should be sad. I literally got in an argument with a pastor friend of mine who was like, we shouldn't laugh in church. It should be serious. I was like, don't come to my church. <laughs> Never inviting you to speak in my church ever. The world will know you because you'll look like you were baptized in lemon juice. <laughs> like, just like we should be miserable. When it's funny, because literally, Tyler quoted this this morning, like the Bible tells us that when God looks at the utter chaos of our world, he can't help but laugh. I think the atmosphere in this was, was electric, was excited. What we don't understand is that Jewish, this, this feast of Passover was a party. It was like a big, huge, come on, luau meal. They were all eating. They were all, literally, I have, I have one, I have, a, I have a friend, believe it or not, I actually have a friend. His name is Joshua. He's a rabbi, like current, right now rabbi. What he does for a living is he literally certifies kosher food. It's like if you see the little K on like stuff, it's his job to go to like food plants and like, yep, you're all good. There's no dead pigs in here. And then um, I don't know. Um, and so he, that's, that's his job. And, and I, I developed a relationship with him many, many years ago. And, um, and we were talking and, and he, we, 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 we both sat down. Like the second time we had lunch, we both sat down and we said, okay, your job as a, as a good Jewish rabbi is to try to convince me that I'm following the wrong Messiah, and my job as a good Christian is to try to get you to see that Jesus is Messiah. So we're going to spend this whole lunch, all we're going to do, we're going to stay as long as we, as, we, as we need to, and we're just going to try to convert each other. And we did, and we both failed. And then we said, okay, can we just be friends now? Sure. And so what happened in this is we would ask people, we would ask each other questions, because how many of you have ever been in church long enough, you've heard like, rabbis teach or Jews do this, and you're like, how do you know? You're not one. So, so I, I asked all these questions, like, is it true that rabbis this, that, or the other? And he would ask me, like, is it true that Christians believe this or do this? Yeah. So one time he asked me, he goes, I got a question, man, I just gotta, I gotta know, why do Christians have such a problem with drinking? I was like, I don't really know. Um, you know, talked about, talked about the holiness movement, talked about a, a lot of different things and started trying to give him a, a classical perspective. I said, why do you ask? He goes, because, man, if you were to come to Passover, you can't drink seven glasses of wine and not be a little, a little tipsy. Because that's part of the celebration. So what I'm trying to get you to see is that's the environment of what's happening. They're laughing. They're joking. I mean, okay, let's get really real here, okay? If that didn't offend you, here we go. You got seven dudes, no mention of ladies in the room. Gentlemen, how gross was that room? Come on. Bunch of dudes hung around all the time, fart jokes. Who knows what was going on? I'm sure Jesus was just hovering above it all and not affected by any of it. Like, that's, that's the environment. And in the midst of all this, when they're so excited, they're probably thinking, like, Jesus is about to be enthroned as the king of Israel. He's about to kick out the, the Roman oppressors. Everything's about to be great. Everything's about to be awesome. And in the midst of all that, he goes, one of you guys is going to betray me. And they know what he's talking about. Because they know, we know from, from even from John's account, that they knew that the leaders were trying to kill Jesus. Imagine what that would have done in the room. It went instantly from party central to heavy, to troubled, to doubting, to discouragement. 
And in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of the chaos, in the midst of all of the trouble, Jesus shatters their hope by announcing his betrayal. You've got to wonder what went through the disciples' heads at this point. Because you, you, we, we've talked about this in the past. At this point in, in history, at this point in the nation of Israel, in this point, this part of the world, lots of people had tried to, tried to rise up as the Messiah and been quickly squashed by either the Jewish leaders or the Roman authority. You've got to wonder if people are going, okay, here we go. This is, this is it. We're done. Jesus is just another. I thought, I thought, man, I, I so thought he was the one. I thought he said he was the one. And here we are at the pinnacle. We're, 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 we're at the part where we get to win. We're about to make Israel great again. We're about to woke everybody up. We're about to topple all the institutional problems in our world. And then Jesus says, now this is all about to end. One of you guys is going to betray me. And I love, I love what the text says. Did you hear what the text said? They all looked around at each other like, not me. Because they knew if they didn't look around that everyone would think it was them. So like, I'm going to look at everybody in the eye. It's not me. I promise it's not me. John would have been just as shaken by this as everybody else. This, this seems to come as just, just as much of a surprise to John as to all the other disciples. Nowhere in here does, John, does it say like, and then John was like, yeah, I already knew that. No, he, he, he's, he's just as taken aback. What is so surprising to me is how different John responds to everybody else. While everybody else is freaking out, John leans in to Jesus. John, John doesn't, doesn't, doesn't freak out. What John understands, catch this please, follow with me. What John seems to understand is his only remedy is going to be found in proximity to Jesus. While everybody else seems to take a step back, like, what, what is Jesus? I, I, don't, I don't, what are you talking about, Jesus? I thought, I, thought we were, I thought we were on the home stretch here. I thought we were about to win. I thought, we, I, thought, I, I, thought I voted for Pedro. All my wildest dreams were supposed to come true. I thought this was like the big celebration time. Like, dude, we're having a party. Everything's great. Jesus, what do you, let, let, Jesus is just being emotional. Let's just all chill out over here. And John leads in. When everything in him probably wanted to pull away, he leans in. He, he pushes in. When you, had a, when you have a problem, something unexpected happens. Do you pull away or do you press in? Do you pull away or do you press in? Here, here, I, 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 I got time. I love the ESV. It's the elect standard version. It's the best version. It's awesome. You're welcome to read any other inferior translation you wish. Totally fine. We can still be friends. Great thing about America is you're entitled to your wrong opinion. So um, you can have that. And, and, and uh, doorway into one of, one of the things that I try to do in preaching. Um, 
I, I will occasionally, when I feel like it's, it's extremely helpful, I'll bring up Greek or Hebrew, depending on if it's New Testament or Old Testament, but I don't do it a lot. Some of you have asked me to do it more. Let me explain to you why I don't. If you've come up and asked me, I've explained this to you, but one of the reasons I don't dive into Greek and Hebrew word studies in preaching <clears throat> is because I want you to trust your Bible. And there's this subtle inference when a pastor constantly goes back to the original language that you can't trust your Bible. That you need to, you either need to do the miserable task of learning Hebrew and Greek, or you need to just come to me and all as the great authoritarian, I'll explain it to you. Listen, I'm just going to be really just straight up real with y'all. Um, every dude who translated the, the ESV is like 6,700 times smarter than I am. Like flat out. I would even venture to guess that most of the guys and gals that translated the NIV are probably at least as smart as me. Um, uh, and most of them are probably smarter. Um, but, but, but occasionally, occasionally, for, for lots of good reasons, if you want to learn more about this, come talk to me, but for good reasons, we, we sort of miss it on a word or two in, in here. And, and, and one of the words that I think that, that the, the way smarter than me guys at, at, at Crossway doing the ESV Bible missed here, and I think I know why, is they say here that John was at Jesus' side. That's a bad translation of that word. Don't go throwing away your ESV Bible. It's better than all the rest. But just... <laughs> I don't get paid for, for ESV, just so you know. It's just an obsession. Um, it's not a good translation. I think I know why they did it, because uh, one of the things that I, um, one of the issues I have with the ESV is I think the people, the dudes who are involved in the translating of the ESV uh, are afraid of emotions. <laughs> not a lot of emotion in the ESV. Um, and, and, and so the, the word there is a little, little weird. The word, literally, the Greek word for side, that they translate in here, side, is bosom. And I think a room full of dudes just could not write bosom in the Bible as it relates to a person, a dude interacting with Jesus. They're like, nope, hard pass. We'll put thigh, because that's respectable as we wear our ties and our suits. Um, but we fail to understand, right? Like, they weren't wearing suits and ties. They also weren't wearing jeans and t-shirts. They, they, they were wearing the, the garments of their day, these long robes. And, and bosom, literally, the word side or bosom literally means, this is why it's a bad translation. The word side, that's translated here side, that should have been translated bosom, literally in the Greek. The literal translation is the part of the body between the arms. John was laying on Jesus' chest. And for religious people and rebellious people, we don't like that. That's awkward. That's weird. That's, that makes us uncomfortable. John was reclining. He was leaning on Jesus. I, here's, 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 here's the first thing that just makes my mind go, it's a theological term. Um, John the Beloved knows what Jesus' heartbeat sounds like. <laughs> that's like just nope don't have words like yeah I'm done I'm just see you later the heart that pumped the blood that washes away the sins of the world what is that what did that sound like John knows 
We don't know that anybody else on the planet, probably his mom and dad knew, because right, when you have babies, you do all kinds of weird stuff with them. A new baby, and you're just like, I'm just going to stare at you all day long. <laughs> Something in you wants to eat their cheeks. Little did Mary and Joseph know. Just saying. Um, no, we, we, we have this picture of John. He leans in, but there's, there's another layer to this. John knows the heartbeat of Jesus. When trouble comes, when difficulty comes, come on, somebody. I think there's a lesson for us to learn here. Lean into Jesus and learn his heart. Here's the hard part. Jesus was the one that caused the trouble. And yet, even knowing that, John leans in. Jesus, I want to hear your heart in this. I want to understand this. They have a conversation in it. They have a conversation so intimate that even the people sitting right next to them don't hear it. But here's the part that really messed me up. Bosom, literally, the, the part of the body between the arms. But there's another, it was used culturally for something different. It's also used of the bosom of a garment. So, again, just to really make religious people uncomfortable, dudes essentially wore long dresses at this point in history. They wore long robes, lots of fabric. They're trying to keep the sun and the dirt off of them. And the bosom of the robe, they were wrapping, they wrapped fabric around themselves. The bosom of the garment was this extra bit of fabric that would be kind of in that area between the shoulders, the kind of the abdomen area. And they would have a, another piece of fabric that would wrap around their waist. And what they would do is they'd kind of pull the fabric up and make a little pouch. And that's where they would carry things. That's where they would carry what they needed as they went around. That's, that's how they would they'd kind of tie it all up. And that was kind of their little, their little fanny pack. And uh, it's like, no, it's, I didn't have too much feast last night. It's, I'm carrying lots of stuff, right? Like a little, little kind of cover it up, you know? That also means bosom. It means the area in a garment where one, what it says, where one kept and carried things. So not only does John lean in to hear the heartbeat of Jesus in his time of trouble, but he leans in and trusts, come on somebody, that Jesus will keep and carry him through the deepest, darkest trial. When everything goes sideways, when everything goes awry, when everything goes the opposite way that I think it should, I'm going to lean into Jesus and trust that he and he alone can keep me and carry me through this. I'm not going to go try to find, like Judas, a practical, pragmatic solution to my problem. Like Peter, I'm not going to go run out and try to fix it myself and try to come up with all the right answers and, and pass the test and beat the trick and get out of the trap. I'm just going to lean in and trust that he and he alone can keep me and carry me through this. How did John get here? How did he get here? Here's the weird part. He doesn't tell us. In an attempt to keep himself out of the spotlight, he doesn't tell us why, which tells me this. It's extremely simple how he got here. He got here the way he's telling you to get here. He got here by hearing and believing Jesus. That's it. 
That's what, John, that's what John's telling us to do the whole time. He's trying, to, he's trying to get us to hear Jesus, and then he says he wrote everything that he wrote so that you would believe. Believe means to embrace and entrust Jesus. Here's what I'm trying to get you to see. Here's what I think John is trying to get us all to see. You ready? John wasn't special. Nothing in John accomplished this. Something in Jesus accomplished this. Something in Jesus accomplished this, this, this thing in John. John knew. John knew. John knew that he was beloved. He knew himself as beloved. I think John was convinced of two things. That Jesus was worthy and holy. That he was good and nothing but good. He only did good and he was good. And that that holy and worthy God welcomed him home. That he was, he was invited by Jesus to be with Jesus. When, Je when Jesus looked at John, whom we believe was the youngest of all the disciples, Jesus looked at him and said, follow me. John believed that Jesus meant, be with me and you'll be like me. He believed him. He just, he just believed. He, he saw Jesus as worthy. He saw Jesus as holy. And he trusted that he was welcome to his home in him. He knew this. He knew this. He knew this. Real fast. Just to, to paint the picture as clear as I can. Peter versus Jesus. If, if, you, if you, as I preached through you this morning, or if you were here with us, or if you went back and listened to the podcast, and you were like, man, I'm a Peter. I am so Peter. I'm, I'm the religious guy. I'm the one that thinks everything's a trick and a trap. Let's look at the difference in the way they, they respond. And, and I would encourage you, homework. You go through the story. Write down how many differences you can see in the two of them. This is just four that I saw real quick. Peter refuses Jesus' washing his feet. John receives it. Peter is insecure, and yet we see John here having an amazing assurance. All the disciples looked around the room trying to figure out who was going to betray Jesus. Insecurity would have made them think, maybe it's me. And John went, he's, he's holy, he's worthy, and he's holy. And he only ever does good. He's not like anybody else. I can trust him. I'm going to lean in. He had an assurance there. Peter sees a trap. John just trusts. Peter pulls away. Come on. John leans in. This is maybe, maybe the most surprising thing to me as I studied this out over the last several weeks. I kept, I kept, do, you ever, do you ever do this? Do you ever read a passage of Scripture over and over and over again? And one part just won't stop yelling at you. Anybody else have this? It's, it's weird. It's something that happens to me regularly. And, and what I've learned over the years is that nine times out of ten, God's trying to say something to me through that. And this is the frustrating part. This is just, again, confession time. There's no way I can rush him. Anybody else learned that God cares nothing about your clock or your calendar? He's like, don't care. <laughs> I'm not care about you, but you're not your calendar. <laughs> So I just have to kind of sit on it. And here's, here's, the, here's, here's, here's the part. Let's just jump to the verse. John 13, 30. This is, this is the part. After receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. Here's the part. Four words. And it was night. 
I couldn't stop reading that over and over, and it was night, and it was night, and it was night, and it was night. And I would think I knew what God was trying to say, and then I'd go back, and I'm like, is this it? He's like, nope. <laughs> and it was night, 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 and it was night. And then I remembered another verse in John, four, for, chapter 9, verse 4. Jesus speaking, we must work the works of him who sent me. Who's that? The Father. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. When it's daytime, we do the work of the Father. We can't work at night. We know that's not true. Don't, don't, don't check your brain at the door of the Bible. You know you can work at night. So what he must mean by this is we can't do the work of the Father at night. We have to do it now while it's daytime because there's a night coming. And then once it's night, the Father doesn't work at night. This would have been understood by all the good little Hebrew boys that Jesus was talking to. You rested at night. Also, just culturally, they didn't have flashlights. Right? Like when it was dark, you can't do any work. So the difference here, if we, if we saw Peter and John, and we saw the difference there, in Judas and John, I think the difference is how they used the night. Genesis. It was day, it was, it was evening and it was morning. It was evening and it was morning. It was evening and morning. So what does that tell us? God designed both the night and the day. So, so, so please get out of your head the cultural idea of nighttime is the evil time. Because it's dark. It's spooky. Now the scriptures do make it clear that night can be used to, as a cover, come on, for evil. But the night is not evil. Night is not evil. We use it as a cover for evil when, please follow with me, when God says rest and we say work. Night was set aside as the time in, in, the, in, our, in our regular 24-hour routine where you stop working. And you rest. The difference in Judas and John is Judas said, it's night, I'm going to go keep working. If you think, oh, I'm going to, I love you. If you think that you have to run yourself ragged at both ends to accomplish God's work, you're not doing God's work. I love you. I really do. If, if you engaging in what you think is going to solve the problem in the world today is, is making you freaked out, fried out, burned out, stressed out, you are not doing the work of the Father. Because Colossians tells us that Jesus is our rest. So if you're in him, you should be resting. It was nighttime. So John leans into Jesus. 
this is what night is for. It's for resting. This is where I am. I'm going to rest. Judas says, I got stuff I got to do. I got I to gotta get this. I got to get Jesus to be able to do this. I got I to gotta solve the problems. I got to go, 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 go. And what he finds himself, I'm convinced Judas thought he was doing the work of the Father. But he was doing it at night. Two options at night. Keep working and know our labor is not of the Father. Or rest and know that God is enough. We've seen Jesus. A lot of ways we're going to see him today as the intimate reconciling one. Come on. These are the two things I want you to know. Jesus is always and only good. And you are personally, personally, passionately, powerfully loved by him. We started this little look at all of this stuff, this, this chapter, and I want to end it in the same place. You have to know that you are loved by God. The only one who gets it right in the story is not the one who's older and wiser, not smarter and stronger. He's the one who's just young enough and just dumb enough to believe Jesus when he says that I'm always and only good and I love you. And John goes, okay. And when Jesus says, all the things you think are going to happen, none of them are going to happen. Everything's going to be miserable. John goes, wow. Okay. Because if, if you're still you, then I'm, I'm, I'm in. I'll lean in. I want to hear your heart. I want to be carried and kept by you. I used to say it this way. If you've been around long enough, you've heard this before. So, if you watch a mother in the animal kingdom, a mother and their children, they act differently. If you watch a, if you watch a, 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 a cat, anybody have a kitten? Anybody have any cats? No, repent and believe the gospel. Um, <laughs> if you watch a, a cat and its kittens and it needs to move them from one place to another, the mom will come and Pick them up, carry them where they need to go, and drop them off. Pick them up, carry them over, and put them where they need to go. Corral them as they try to get away and keep them where they need to be. This is very different than monkeys. Monkey babies literally cling to their mom's back for dear life as mom jumps all over the trees. It is normal for little baby monkeys to fall off mom's back and die because they can't hold on well enough. Mom cannot slow down. She has to keep moving or else they're going to get eaten. And, and all. So she just keeps moving. Many of us think that faith is monkey faith. It's about me holding on to Jesus while he jumps around and does all the stuff he's trying to do. And I might hold on if I'm strong enough and good enough and brave enough, but I might fall down and die. And what I need you to see is that faith is like kitten faith. He holds on to you. He is good. He is faithful. When you are not good and when you fail, he is still good and he's faithful. And he personally, powerfully, privately, intimately loves you. Jesus wants intimacy with you more than you want intimacy with him. He is always the initiator. And here's why I want to I I get this into us now. 
Because this love that he has toward you must become your identity if you are to be known solely as beloved. If we're to be like John, we need to be able to say, when we we think about our own identity, we need to go, beloved. Beloved. I'm loved by God. I'm loved by Jesus. Until it becomes the sole identity of you, you will always try to earn it, merit it, work for it, achieve it, convince Jesus to do what you want him to do. You'll go looking for it in politics and socializing. You'll go looking for it in things and possessions and relationships and success or failure or victimhood or whatever it is. You'll go looking for that identity somewhere else. And Jesus is just trying to say, I have a place in my bosom for you where you can hear my heart, and I keep, and I carry you. Let's stand to our feet. I just want to give us time today to respond to that simple call. To know that you are the beloved of God. Listen to me. Not your grandma, not your mom, not your spouse, not your kids, not super spiritual people. You're not beloved when, listen, you're not beloved when you do well and not beloved when you don't do well. Taught us this before, I'm going to keep saying it. The Bible calls you beloved, not lovely. When God looks at you, he doesn't say, oh, you're lovely. There are times practically, come on somebody, I need an amen from all the married people, that you are not lovely. But you are always, you are always, you are always beloved. You're always beloved. In the midst of your falling, in the midst of your failing, in the midst of your willful rejection and rebellion against God as a son of God, you are still called beloved.